So what would you say then would be the importance then of his papal legacy? Because I want to talk one thing that I think might be one of the negative lowlights would be for many people was when he saw to it that in the liturgy that the language was changed back to a more literal translation from the Latin rather than the more eloquent and lyrical post-Vatican II work that had been done by liturgists and you know, things. And he brought in this commission, the way it was, this group was brought in, they didn't have liturgical expertise and many, many English people, priests and whatever included, would say that, you know, it's very difficult to even read the different Eucharistic prayers and those translations. Yes, now I don't know all the manoeuvres behind the founding of the Vox Clara Commission. That's the commission you were talking. It is, yes. That abandoned some kind of a principle, it was called dynamic equivalence. Yes, or literal translation. Much more literal translating of the Latin. And so well, I do remember something funny. I was at home in my Jesuit community when the new books came out. And one of the others was celebrating the Mass. And the opening prayers were particularly cumbersome and difficult to get through. Oh Lord, please ensure that, given that we, in all our imperfection, might, under your gracious guidance, in our merciless state, would, and then there were more subordinate clauses and so on. And the guy who had defended the translation a few days before at a meal broke down and laughed because he could not finish the prayer. So I just think that uh, the translation was cumbersome, unwieldy, awkward, literal, and not so helpful. And I still find aspects of the Eucharistic, I don't celebrate Mass much in English now, uh, here in Rome, but I find it um, a phrase like that we might merit to be co-heirs. I can see what it's translating, but I find it clumsy. And there are many others. And there were emphasis, for example, another part of one of the Eucharistic prayers, I think it's the third, speaks of this family you have summoned before you. There is an image of God in some of those prayers, and the image of God is severe. Okay, they thought, or some people thought, that we had become too casual with God. We were having cups of tea at the back of the church after Mass. Oh, Jim, so he we, might even become a human being like us. Well, that would be the worst possible thing. I knew you'd avail of the opportunity to say something like that. But people were saying there isn't enough awe and reverence before the majesty and mightiness of God. And it's a gift to us to know that we're also sinners and Sinners but love, I'd hasten to add. Uh, some of that is true, but I think some of the baby went out with the bathwater in the production of that translation that I still don't want to, frankly. That's very interesting, actually. But the question that I think mostly I would love you to answer as a theologian is the thing about the all and the many. This is my body, this is my blood, will be shed for you and for many, so that sins may be forgiven, rather than it will be shed for you and for all. Do you know, as a theologian, was there a theological reservation being held there that not everybody would be saved? I couldn't say uh, that there was a... I just don't know whether there was a strong sense that it was important to remind people. There's another place in the Eucharistic prayer when 
it says something like, all who have left this world in your friendship. Yeah, exactly. Um, it is open. Obviously, nobody will be bombed into salvation. So God will not save us if we don't want to be saved. But my understanding is that God will save us even if we are very bad. If we would wish to be in the company of God, and when we meet God uh, after death, if anything in us can correspond with the love and goodness and beauty of God, there is hope for our eternal redemption. I think that's generally the church's teaching. So if somebody is slipping in something surreptitiously to remind people, well, salvation isn't there for the taking. It's another example of thinking that we must sharpen, sharpen up God and make God more severe in case people would be too casual. Now, I don't know if those kind of motivations were behind. Many Latin scholars tell me that pro vobis et pro multis, for you and for many, in Latin means for the one and for the all. That multis isn't to be taken to mean many in that careful way that people hearing it in English are hearing it. And I think that's true because the act of Jesus in his self-giving opened salvation for everybody, if not everybody avails of it, if they live lives which are totally contrary to being able to even receive the gift and possibility, that's a different thing. You know, they say, well, will everybody saved? And why doesn't theology just go ahead and say that there's nobody damned because God is merciful and saves everyone? Well, theology doesn't do that because it wants to respect human freedom. And a consequence of human freedom is that God will not impose God's own love on somebody who says no thanks. But it's an anthropological rather than an eschatological thing about torture chambers on the other side of. I'll tell you a story, though, again, which balances out the liturgical severity with another kind of attitude. You asked me about particularly Ratzinger getting old, were there changes? And I see changes in style, changes in greater gentleness in the way things were handled, serious changes in the matter of uh, dealing with pedophilia, and other changes too, perhaps, in the matter of dealing with theologians. But in 2006, a year after being Pope, he was in the north of Italy on holiday, talking to priests from, I think, Aosta was the diocese, and they were free to ask questions. And one guy got up and he said uh, a bit sharply, look, he said, Holy Father, my people in my parish, I never see them. They don't come, they don't give, they don't help, they don't do anything. But when it comes First Communion time, they're there, they're banging down the doors, making sure that their kid is on the First Communion list. And so that he, in his little suit, or she in her white dress, can take part in this important, for families, important event, or you could say ritual or whatever. I'm inclined to say, look, if I don't see you Sunday to Sunday to Sunday, well, maybe not. You're not really a member of the parish. And maybe it was also in relation to baptism. Why baptize people who are not actually effectively members of the community? Ratzinger's response. Yeah. When I was a young priest, I would very much have shared your viewpoint. These people are not really seeking to be members of the communio of the church. But now that I am an old, old man, and I have become aware through my life of the almost, I've forgotten the word he used in Italian, but it was like ridiculous, the overblown, the exaggerated, the immeasurable, the beyond the beyond mercy of God, 
I would be inclined, he said, to answer differently. That's very interesting, isn't it? We have to give everybody a chance to grow. You know what I mean? He was not always the most amiable prelate, but some of those who were had their shortcomings too. And some of us priests who were more approachable and some of us priests who are less approachable, that's not where it, it all cuts. It has to be said that, and he was asked by those same priests or another priest about communion for the divorced and remarried. What did he say to that? He said, it's a matter that deserves further study. Just like we had thought way back in 1972, but John Paul II in 1984 in Familiaris Consortio thought something different. So Ratzinger, when he was under John Paul and in that position, didn't contradict the Pope, but he said when he was Pope, that's a matter that requires further study. Maybe that that is also why that development that you're outlining as he grew older is why he was able to resign, which was a huge decision by any standard. That was an ecclesial bombshell, an ecclesiological bombshell. Eugene Duffy, writing in Doctrine and Life shortly after it, spoke of it as opening up new possibilities for all future popes. I said something, I said it less well than Eugene Duffy, but I also said that he dealt with the age matter with life offices and so on in a way that conferred new freedom. Somebody in Northern Italy, a professor said, Ratzinger, who was always giving out about relativism, has now gone and relativized the papacy. Well, I couldn't take that. So I wrote, he has not relativized the papacy, but he has relativized his own incumbency of the papacy. Ratzinger, when he saw that he didn't have the strengths, but still had the intellect to make a free decision, he saw that he didn't have the strengths to carry on at 85, same age as little less than the present Pope now, he resigned. And I don't think he did it for the good of Ratzinger. I think he did it for the good of the church because he will always do that ever since he was that nine-year-old boy. And I think that that was a huge gift to the church in in terms also of demystifying the papacy a bit and certainly demystifying the cult that can grow up around a particular Pope. Ratzinger has great respect for that papacy, but... With regard to himself as Pope, he would say, I was not of ultimate importance. There's a lovely thing in the introduction to Christianity written when he was 40, where it's consistent with all that stuff about human beings not making salvation, not making church unity, but just assisting, aiding under God and so on. Ratzinger says, we are always but of penultimate importance, never ultimately important.